Chapter Forty One of A Red Wallflower. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. A Red Wallflower by Susan Warner. Chapter Forty One. An Old House. Arrangements were soon made. The landlady of the house was contented with a handsome bonus. Baggage was sent off a carriage was ordered and the party set forth it was a very strange experience to betty if her position was felt to be a little awkward at the same time it was most deliciously adventurous and novel she sat demurely enough by mrs dallas's side eyeing the strange streets through which they passed hearing every word that was spoken by anybody and keeping the while herself an extremely smooth and careless exterior she was full of interest for all she saw and yet the girl saw it as in a dream or only as a background upon which she saw pitt she saw him always without often seeming to look at him the content of mr and mrs dallas was inexpressible where will you find anything like that now said mr dallas as they were passing hyde park ah miss betty wait you will never want to see washington again the capital who who it may do for a little beginning of a colony but wait till you have seen a few things here what will you show her first pitt kensington kensington ah to be sure well i suppose your new house takes precedence of all other things for the present not my new house said pitt it is anything but that there is nothing new about it but the master i thought i should bring you back with me mother so i told mrs bunce to have luncheon ready as i said she can cook a chop by degrees the houses became thinner as they drove on grass and trees were again prominent and it was in a region that looked at least half country that the carriage at last stopped indeed more than half country for the city was certainly left behind everything was in fresh green the air was mild and delicious the place quiet the carriage turned from the road and passed through an iron gateway and up a gravel sweep to the door of an old house shaded by old trees and surrounded by a spread of velvety turf the impression as betty descended from the carriage was that here had been ages of dignified order and grave tranquillity the green sward was even and soft and a vivid freshness the old trees were stately with their length of limb and great solid trunks and the house the house towards which she turned as if to ask questions of it was of moderate size built of stone and so massively built as if it had been meant to stand for ever that was seen at once in the thickness of the walls the strong oaken doorway and the heavy window frames but as soon as betty set foot within the door she could almost have screamed with delight upon my word very good very well said mr dallas standing in the hall and reviewing it and then perceiving the presence of the servants he checked himself and reviewed them these are my uncle's faithful old friends mother it was saying mrs bunce and stephen hill have you got something ready for travellers mrs bunce dignified order and grave tranquillity was the impression on betty's mind again as they were ushered into the dining-room it was late and the party sat down at once to table but betty could hardly eat for feasting her eyes and when they went upstairs to their rooms that feast still continued 
The house was irregular, with rather small rooms than low ceilings, which itself was pleasant after the more commonplace regularity to which Miss Frere had been accustomed, and then it was full. All the rooms were full, full of quaintness and beauty. Oak wainscotings, dark with time, oaken doorways with singular carvings, chimney-pieces before which Betty stood in speechless delight and admiration, small-pane windows set in deep window niches, in one or two rooms dark draperies, but the late Mr. Strahan had not favored anything that shut out the light, and in most of the house there were no curtains put up, and then, on the walls, in cupboards and presses, on tables and shelves, and in cabinets, there was an endless variety and wealth of treasures and curiosities, pictures, bronzes, coins, old armor, old weapons, curiosities of historical value, others of natural production, others still of art. Some of all these were very valuable and precious. To examine them must be the work of many days. It was merely the fact of their being there which Betty took in now, with a sense of the great riches of the new mental pasture-ground in which she found herself. She changed her dress in a kind of breathless mood, noticing as she did so the old-fashioned and aged furniture of a room. Aged, not infirm. The manufacture solid and strong as ever. The wood darkened by time, the patterns quaint, but to Betty's eye the more picturesque. Her apartment was a corner room, with one deep window on each of two sides the lookout over a sunny landscape of grass, trees, and scattered buildings. On another side was a deep chimney-place, with curious wrought-iron fire-dogs. What a delightful adventure! Or what a terrible adventure! Was it which had brought her to this house? She would not think of that. She dressed and went down. The rest of the party were gathered in the library, and this room finished Betty's enchantment. It was a well-sized room, the largest in the house on the second floor, and all the properties that made the house generally interesting were gathered and culminated here. Dark wainscoting, dark bookcases, and dark books gave it an aspect that might have been gloomy, yet was not so, perhaps because of the many other objects in the room which gave points of light or bits of color. What they were, Betty could only find out by degrees. She saw at once, in general, that this must have been a favorite place of the late owner, and that here he had collected a special assemblage of the things that pleased him best. A table at one side must have been made, she thought, about the same time with her chamber furniture, and by the same hand. The floor was dark and polished, and on it lay here and there bits of soft carpeting, which were well worn. Betty advanced slowly to the corner where the party were sitting, taking in the effect of all this, then almost started as Pitt gave her a chair, to see in the corner just beyond the group a stuffed bear showing his teeth at her. The father and mother had been talking about various matters at home, and the talk went on. Betty presently left them and began to examine the sides of the room. She studied the bear, which was in an upright position, resting one paw on a stick, while the other supported a lamp. From the bear her eyes passed on to a fire-screen, which stood before the empty chimney, and then she went to look at it nearby. It was a most exquisite thing. Two great panes of plate glass were so set in a frame that a space of some three or four inches separated them. In this space, in every variety of position, were suspended on invisible wires some twenty hummingbirds of different kinds, and whether the light fell upon the screen in front 
or came through it from behind. The display was in either case most beautiful and novel. Betty at last wandered to the chimney-piece, and went no further for a good while, studying the rich carving and the coat of arms which was both sculptured and painted in the midst of it. By and by she found the pit was beside her. "'Mr. Strayhands?' she asked. "'No, they belong to a former possessor of the house. It came into my uncle's family by the marriage of his father.' "'It is very old?' "'Pretty old.' that is what in america we would call so it reaches back to the time of the stuarts really that is not so long ago as it seems it is worth while to be old if it gives one such a chimney-piece as that but i should not like another man's arms in it if i were you why not i don't know i believe it diminishes the sense of possession a good thing then said pitt do you remember that they that have are told to be as though they possessed not? How can they? answered Betty, looking at him. You know the words? I seem to have read them. I suppose I have. Then there must be some way of making them true. What is this concern, Pitt? inquired his father, who had followed them and was looking at a sort of cabinet which was framed into the wall. I was going to invite Miss Frere's attentions to it, yet, on reflection, i believe she is not enthusiastic for that sort of thing that is valuable father it is a collection of early greek coins uncle strahan was very fond of that collection and very proud of it he had brought it together with a great deal of pains rubbish i should say observed the elder man and he moved on while betty took his place now i do not understand them she said you can see the beauty of some of them look at this head of apollo that is beautiful exquisite was that a common coin of trade doubtful in this case it is not certain that this was not rather a medal struck for the members of the amphitionic council but see this coin of syracuse this was a common coin of trade only of a size not the most common all i can say is their coinage was far handsomer than ours if it was like that the reverse is as fine as the obverse, a chariot with four horses, done with infinite spirit. How can you remember what is on the other side? I suppose this side is what you mean by the obverse of this particular coin? Are you sure? Pitt produced a key from his pocket, unlocked the glass door of the cabinet, and took the coin from its bed. On the other side was what he had stated to be there. Betty took the piece in her hands to look and admire. That is certainly very fine, she said, but her attention was not entirely bent on the coin. Is this lovely head meant for Apollo too? No, don't you see it is feminine? Ceres, it is thought, but Mr. Strahan held that it was Arethusa, in honor of the nymph that presided over the fine fountain of sweet water near Syracuse. The coinage of that city was extremely beautiful and diversified, yielding to hardly any other design and workmanship. Here is an earlier one. You see the very different stage art had attained to. A regular Greek face, remarked Betty, going back to the coin she held in her hand. See the straight line of the nose and the very short upper lip. Do you hold that the Greek type is the only true beauty? Not I. The only true beauty, I think, is that of the soul, or at least that which the soul shines through. What are these little fish swimming about the head? 
they would seem to indicate a marine deity. The dolphin, the Syracusan emblem. I wish I had been born in those times, said Betty, and the wish had a meaning in the speaker's mind which the hearer could not divine. Why do you wish that? asked Pitt, smiling. I suppose the principal reason is that then I should not have been born in this. Everything is dreadfully prosy in our age. Oh, not here at this moment, but this is a fairy tale we are living through. I know how the plain world will look when I go back to it. At present, said Pitt, taking the Syracusan coin and restoring it to its place, you are not an enthusiastic numismatist. No, how should I? Coins are not a thing to excite enthusiasm. They are beautiful and curious, but not exactly, not exactly stirring. I had a scholar once, remarked Pitt, as he locked the glass door of the cabinet, whose eyes would have opened very wide at sight of this collection. Have you heard anything of the Gainsboroughs, mother? Betty started, inwardly, and was seized with an unreasoning fear lest the question might next be put to herself. Quietly, as soon as she could, she moved away from the coin cabinet, and seemed to be examining something else, but she was listening all the while. Nothing whatever, Mrs. Dallas had answered. They have not come back to England. I have made out so much. I looked up the family after I came home last fall. Their headquarters are at a nice old place down in Devonshire. I introduced myself and got acquainted with them. They are pleasant people, but they knew nothing of the colonel. He has not come home, and he has not written. Thus much I have found out. It is not certain, however, grumbled Mr. Dallas. I believe he has come home, that is, to England. He was on bad terms with his people, you know. When are you going to show Miss Frere and me London? asked Mrs. Dallas. She was as willing to lead off from the other subject as Betty herself. Show you London, Mamma? Show you a bit of it, you mean. It would take something like a lifetime to show you London. What bit will you begin with? What first, Betty, said Mrs. Dallas. Betty turned and slowly came back to the others. Take her to see the lions in the tower, suggested Mr. Dallas, and the waxwork. Do you think I have never seen a lion, Mr. Dallas? said the young lady. Well, small ones, said the gentleman, stroking his chin. But the tower is a big lion itself. I believe I should like to go to the tower. I have never been there yet, old as I am. I do not want to go to the tower, said Mrs. Dallas. I do not care for that kind of thing. I should like to see the temple and Pitt's chambers. So should I, said the younger lady. You might do worse, said Pitt. Then tomorrow we will go to the temple and to St. Paul's. St. Paul's? That will not hold us long, will it? said Betty. Is it so much to see? A good deal if you go through and study the monuments. Well, said Betty, I suppose it will be all delightful. But when she had retired to her room at night, her mood was not just so. She sat down before a glass and ruminated. That case of coins, and Pitt's old scholar, and the Gainsboroughs, who had not come home. He would find them yet. Yes, and Esther would one day be standing before those coins, and Pitt would be showing them to her. And she, she would enter into his talk about them, and would understand and have sympathy, and there would be sympathy on other points, too. 
If Esther ever stood there, in that beautiful old library, it would be as mistress and at home. Betty had a premonition of it. She put her hands before her eyes to shut out the picture. Suppose she earned well of the two and gained their lasting friendship by saying the words that would bring them to each other. That was one way out of her difficulty. But then, why should she? What right had Esther Gainsborough to be happy more than Betty Frere? The other way out of her difficulty, namely, to win Pitt's liking, would be much better. And then, they both of them might be Esther's friends. For of one thing Betty was certain. If she could win Pitt, he would be won. No halfway work was possible with him. He would never woo a woman he did not entirely love, and any woman so loved by him would not need to fear any other woman. It would be once for all. Betty had never, as it happened, met thoroughgoing truth before. She recognized it and trusted it perfectly in Pitt. And it was one of the things, she confessed to herself, that drew her most mightily to him. A person whom she could absolutely believe and always be sure of, whom else in the world could she trust so? Not her own brothers, not her own father. Mother she had none. How did she know so securely that Pitt was an exception to the universal rule? The question might be asked, and she asked it. She had not seen him tested in any great thing. But she had seen him tried in little bits of everyday things, in which most people think it is no harm to dodge the truth a little, and Betty recognized the soundness of the axiom, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. End of chapter 41 Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen Gilbert, Arizona